just a shame when a lot of the a lot of the research that has been devoted to the short stuff is being sort of incorrectly applied to long distance athletes. I think uh, I think that gap is only recently just really starting to be uh, you know starting to be brought down, and we're we're getting an understanding for the specifics of our sport. You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Hey there, all you Zen triathlon freaks and geeks, and welcome to another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Hey, on this show, as you heard at the top of the show, we have the incredible Alan Cousins. I love having him on. He is such a wizard with ultra training and has just an amazing background and does a ton of work and research on endurance athletes and it's just such a find to uh, get him on to talk about all kinds of great stuff. We talk about how to know if you're starting to become uncoachable and what would make you uncoachable. It's really cool. And we talk about sodium, hydration, is the, uh, the crusty salt on, the, on your clothes when you finish training or racing, is that from too much salt in your diet or uh, because you're just a high sweater, a high uh, sodium sweater? And also we talk about intervals versus uh, just base volume and which one's actually more effective and for whom. It's a really great interview. And I should also mention that I am here in San Diego or Tan Diego as Rich Roll likes to call it. <laughs> we, uh, I'm here for work, but while I'm here, I used to live here a long time ago. And also I have friends that live here. So I was hanging out with uh, Morgan. Uh, over last weekend, and did a little bit of trail running and a little bit of swimming in the famous pool that they've got here. It's really cool. I think uh, when Maddie Reed does videos uh, of of him swimming and some technique stuff, that this is the pool that they show. They show it with some pros, and uh, I've swum in it before. It's really cool. Went off the high dive, all kinds of crazy crap, but. It's been uh, just a really nice trip. I'm about halfway through my week here, and then when I head back to Texas, I'm going to uh, have to finish moving houses. So lots of crazy stuff going on in my life, but that's enough about me. Let's go ahead and cover a little bit of triathlon news. Here we go. All right, the one thing that is big enough to make the news, well, there's two things. There's a Tour de France going on, which is really cool. And I've got the app on my phone, and uh, you buy it, then it'll show up on your iPad, and you can watch the tour live and recap, stuff like that. But that's uh, something, if you're too late this time around, you can catch next year. It's really great. I really, really strongly uh, encourage it. It's very neat. You get to watch all the videos of the wrecks, <laughs> which is fun. But also, Garmin introduced a heart rate strap that allows you to see your heart rate uh, while swimming. And I'm here to tell you, whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down your horses, everybody. Don't start freaking out like this is the greatest and newest thing ever because, um, one, Sunto has been doing this for quite a while. And on top of that, uh, Polar has been doing it forever. And actually, I had a watch a long time ago that was neither one of those brands. Maybe it was Axiom or something that uh, could do it as well. 
And there's also a, uh, a catch with the uh, newer watches, the Garmin and the, um, uh, the Sunto, where it doesn't show you your heart rate live. What it does is it can't transmit Bluetooth or Ant signal, which is the protocols that they use, because uh, through the water, because the water molecule is the same width as the wavelength of the Ant frequency, 2.3 megahertz. Yeah, or gigahertz, 2.3 gigahertz. And uh, that's the same frequency as a microwave. And you know how a microwave gets stuff hot? Well, it agitates the water in your food and heats it up uh, because the water's blocking the signal. And so uh, the water's got to move with it um, and it'll heat up your food. Well, you're in a swimming pool and your your watch is the microwave. Well, guess which one's more powerful now? <laughs> the pool. <laughs> it's way power, more powerful than your little watch battery trying to uh, transmit, or your heart rate strap battery trying to, trying to uh, transmit to your watch. And it absorbs all that signal and it's not going anywhere. You have to hold your heart rate strap literally within an inch of your watch for it to pick up the signal. Um, so... They've, uh, Sunto and Garmin have put um, memory chips in the heart rate strap. And then when you stand up with your chest above water, and if your wrist with your watch is above water as well, they talk to each other at that point. And with a burst mode, it'll update the watch with your heart rate of what you've been doing lately. Uh, while it, it was recording while it was blocked. And uh, that's how it does it. Now, if you have an older watch, there's some versions of Polar and there's, uh, like I said, some other watches where the signal is analog, not digital, not Bluetooth, not Ant, but it's an old analog frequency. Then what happens is that wavelength is much bigger. It's more like ham radio. And it, it's a much bigger frequency and it travels farther through the water. The water doesn't block it. And you can swim along and get live heart rate, live, the entire time, on your watch while you are swimming. So all you have to do is just look at your watch while you're doing a flip turn or something like that, and it'll tell you what's going on uh, that way. Um, But there is something cool that Garmin came up with, which is the swimming heart rate strap is wider and it has so have less uh, tendency to flip over and roll down your body when you push off the wall. And also the backing material is sticky-ish. And so it's uh, most likely to stay put. Uh, DC Rainmaker did a nice review, but he didn't get to actually wear it in the water. So he doesn't know. And we'll just see. So I've had several people email me about this uh, watch. And, you know, heart rate after you're done doesn't really help you. (laughs) I mean, it kind of does, but it kind of doesn't, you know. Um, I want to see my heart rate right now, what I'm doing. And if I really wanted to know that, then I would get an older watch with an analog signal. And But it does record what happened in the water so that you could, um, after you're all done swimming, you could see, you know, what your heart rate was doing. But the the other thing is, is I train by heart rate on uh, the you know on the run and on the bike and I already know what different heart rates feel like and from all that practice is hours and hours and hours of biking and running I can I can tell by uh, by uh, breathing and effort and burn uh, what's happening in the water and lots of people have gotten very very great at swimming 
without using heart rate. So, um, in fact, every, that would be pretty much everybody. <laughs> and it's not, not having a heart rate strap in the water is not your limiter, trust me. But if, if you want to try it out, definitely uh, give it a try. Maybe it's the thing that'll work for you. Okay. So that is the uh, biggest thing in triathlon news. Oh, we got Boulder coming up, Ironman Boulder coming up so soon. I've got lots of friends in that. Ironman Lake Placid is coming up next weekend. By the time you get the show, um, it'll be half over, and there'll be lots of drama up there. It's the American Summer Classic. All right, so that's all the good stuff. Let's do a uh, sponsor shout-out before we get into uh, our interview with Alan Cousins, and let's talk about Amrita Bars. I brought a bunch of them with me here to San Diego. I had two of them uh, while I was in the airport flying, you know, for like six hours, and um, this is so great. Uh, Amrita Bars are healthy solid nutrition that is uh, uh, one thing it's nut free so you don't have to worry about allergens uh, if you have a nut allergy and it's wholesome healthy food where you don't have to worry about anything it's so zen so simple so nice and you can actually get let's see what's the uh, discount code it's discount code zen z-e-n at amritahealthfoods.com and amrita is a-m-r-i-t-a amritahealthfoods.com and you can get 15% off the entire store of everything and they have really cool kits and also I saw somebody sent me a picture that they're starting to carry them at some of the Sprouts stores and that is really really cool and yeah I just love it man I ate half a bar uh, as I get up in the morning, and uh, Tony Prezak fixed me on that, on overeating in the morning, eat like half a bar, maybe sometimes a whole bar, but then, uh, you know, and some water and a cup of coffee, and then boom, go out and hit my run, and I just have just long-lasting, wonderful energy the entire time. So cool. Eat the other half when I finish up, and that's it. So super, super easy. All right, let's go ahead and get started with our interview with Alan Cousins. And while you're listening to him, listening to him, and you start thinking about you want to research him a little bit and maybe get in touch with him, in the middle of the interview, um, his last name, if you're looking for Alan Cousins on Google, because he's got a big website, it's really cool. Um, his last name is spelled C-O-U-Z-E-C-O-U-Z-E-N-S. It's Alan Cousins. And let's go ahead and get started with Alan. Here we go. I am here with Alan Cousins, which you've got such a great variety of sports background. I'm not even I'm not even sure how to introduce you other than you're that Alan Cousins. (laughs) Who uh, does a lot of you're an athlete and a research scientist. I think I'm describing it correctly, and you have a wonderful website full of just the coolest information about that you've discovered or researched that uh, you've put together for people to use. And I should mention I'm in San Diego, so if you hear a tack chopper's flying overhead, that's what that is. I'm really close to the U.S. the new uh, aircraft carrier that they're um, putting out to sea soon. So oh, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. You're yeah, in. Uh, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. You're in uh, Superior, Colorado, right now, or where are you from? Uh, Lafayette, Colorado, right Lafayette. now. Yep, yep. Uh, well, originally from uh, from Sydney, Australia, but uh, right. I've been living uh, living in the states since uh, 2000 and uh, Colorado since 2004. So. Right. Hey, can you uh, give our audience uh, 
a brief background on on uh, your sporting background. I know you were a swimmer growing up, uh, just like me, I think. And then yeah, you got caught up in the whole ultra endurance uh, mania, and then uh, started working with Gordo, Gordo Byrne, and then uh, now you're you are where you are. So let us know um, how that happened. Yeah. No, that's uh, that is pretty much the story, you know, and I think it's a pretty pretty familiar story uh, based on uh, based on what I've heard. Um, you know, started started out as a swimmer and discovered uh, triathlon after getting a little bit a uh, little bored with the black line, I guess, and uh, and yeah, just uh, kind of really developed a, a passion for endurance sports and uh, decided to study that um, at you know the university level got my got my master's in uh, exercise phys and uh, and yeah it just kind of progressed from there you know uh, athletically I uh, I started to, to kind of discover Ironman and take take that a little bit more seriously as well and uh, and those two two worlds kind of collided and uh, now I'm just uh, geeking out on a, a bunch of uh, a bunch of Ironman specific uh, data, I guess. Yeah, which seems to be an area that's uh, there's been you know decades of sports science research, but you know we're talking stuff that's short, and long distance is a whole other animal. That uh, Comple- completely agree, you know, and and it's uh, it's a shame when. A lot of the a lot of the research that has been devoted to the short stuff is being sort of incorrectly applied to long distance athletes, you know. And uh, I think uh, I think that gap is only recently just really starting to be uh, you know starting to be brought down, and we're we're getting an understanding for the specifics of our sport. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of cases where you have world class level pros. Um, in short course, trying to, to go long course, and it takes them uh, at least a year, and sometimes much more. I think now it's happening faster and faster, right? Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the the guy from um, the guy from New Zealand that uh, just a couple years ago, maybe three years ago, started trying to go long course. And uh, maybe Bevan, or is it, yeah, is it Bevan, Bevan Doherty, yeah. and yeah. Um, his big hang-up was uh, nutrition. Just trying to yeah. nail it down. Obviously, could win races um, if he figured out his nutrition. And then, um, but as we're moving along, you see people like uh, Jan Fordino and and um, um, Reef like coming along and, and moving to longer and longer races. With um, I think research that you're doing and other people are doing is really helping out because they're not trying to have to figure out the mystery themselves like every single time on their own. So um, we're seeing pros come along now, I think faster and faster with the more research that's happening in this field, but it just seems like there's so much more to go because I think um, you've said in, in what you've written in, in, in your interviews, you, you find a lot of success in helping the, uh, the more of the average athlete uh, become successful. And uh, the stuff that you know that you're finding out um, for long course is still it's like battling against all the short course information still. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. You know, and I, I think it's, uh, it crosses a lot of fields. You know, in, in training, we've got um, still a lot of emphasis on that sort of FTP and threshold stuff. And, uh, you know, everything's kind of built around that. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe not as much 
uh, not as much emphasis in in the in the regular literature, you know, the layman's literature uh, on the specifics of, of going long and, and maximizing, you know, adaptation specific to that. Oh, so that's interesting. That's the first time I've heard somebody say this. Are you saying that maybe FTP isn't the the best thing to work with on the bike for a long course? Uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, a lot of athletes become focused on on raising the FTP, and uh, you know I think I think for long course, certainly late in the season, the emphasis should be more on racing at the highest percentage of FTP that, that you possibly can. You know, and mm -hmm. uh, there's sort of uh, there's all these assumptions out there. You know, of, of what intensity factor you should be able to hold for an Ironman. But uh, you know, a lot of athletes never go to the trouble of actually proving that in their in their key sessions. You know, oh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think there's definitely a little bit of a gap there between um, you know the, the, the theory and, and what's actually applied. Yeah, that's um, that's so interesting that you're saying that because you work with Gordo and Gordo Byrne is is where I learned reading some of his stuff. The big gap between um, tested FTP and actual real world FTP and that's where because of reading that that's where I started going out and sampling my workouts for sections that would most resemble the race and the most in long long segments uh, and then gathering power data from that and instead of I, I remember when I first started out I would do an FTP test uphill to get the highest numbers yeah <laughs> So that's so typical. It's so dumb, you know. And I was just like, "Oh man, that's not how you do it. That's the, that's not the race. The race." Um, I had Jordan Rap on here one time saying, "Yeah, you can find more watts when going uphill, for sure. It's easy to do." It's, it's addictive to keep seeing bigger numbers, you know. So it, it becomes a trap to to sort of you know you choose the tests that are going to make you look the best and give you the biggest biggest numbers and. Uh -huh. uh, you know, without without really applying it and thinking about, well, you know, how specific is this to uh, to the race? Yeah, I, I, I sometimes I like to just go select um, rolling terrain where I just felt kind of average, and I'm like, that's probably that's that's the uh, that that's a really good guesstimate of um, how I'll feel during a race, and those numbers are, end up being so right on instead of uh, trying to engineer the test. You know, for when I felt great and I was just killing it. And then sampling those numbers because that's a rarity. That's not what actually happens. No, that's right. You know, and I think I think we all as athletes think that uh, something special is going to happen on race day, and you know, sometimes it does, and it's it's great when it does when an athlete performs above and beyond what you expect. But uh, you know, I think I think it's always good to start from the the position of well, based on what's actually happened. You know, the the athletes average over the past couple of blocks what can we realistically expect and uh yeah i, th yeah. I think that leads to better execution for sure yeah totally okay so um have you i wanted to go over your racing background a little bit you've done um uh some ironmans and uh, probably tons i don't know it's it's kind of hard to find your race history online it's like out of effort of modesty you've buried it <laughs> <laughs> you know no i uh, i no, not find it so not, not at all no i uh, i'm probably just too old. <laughs> it's probably disappeared off the uh, off the interweb. But yeah, I've been. Uh, you did Ultraman. 
you've done an Ultraman or two, right? No, I haven't done Ultraman. No, I've uh, I've coached uh, a couple of Ultraman athletes, so uh-huh. I, I have not. I haven't done Ultraman. Um, you know, obviously, uh, I'm working with Gorda to um. Uh, you let him do them, and then just tell you what happened. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds yeah. a little bit more appealing, but no, it's, it's a long way. It's a long way, Brett. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, uh, and you, uh, like you said, you grew up as a swimmer, which is really cool. I was a sprint freestyler. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What What sort of times were you were you laying down? Um, I my fastest ever sprint was a fifty yard free sub twenty one seconds, and I was only seventeen years old. Had just turned seventeen, and uh, and then I got burnt. I got injured and then burned out and then quit for ten years. <laughs> Yeah, yep. that's, that's a common story, isn't it? It yeah, really is. I yeah. had a shoulder injury, and I was like, "That's it." Um, and it, I went to Texas. I had an offer for a swim scholarship at one school, and then uh, when I was at A and M, Texas A and M, my sophomore year, I um, uh, somebody said that I, you know, could just walk on the swim team that I'd probably qualify. And uh, I thought about it for a long time, and then somebody that I knew from high school was on the swim team, and he, and she said, "You don't want to do it. It's, you know, two three hours a day. It seems like of swimming, and then when uh, you have to leave to go to a swim meet, if you were a football player, the coaches give you all kinds of slack. The uh, teachers give you all kinds of slack on your test taking and stuff. Okay. But because you know Texas A and M is a big football school, and uh, you get." very little consideration um as a traveling athlete as a swimmer it's just sucked and uh and my brother was on um, a college swim team and uh, a different one and he said it's it's just so it's work all the time and and what are you going to do with it after graduation you know it's not going to lead to a career if you're just doing it on the side and um and so i said no i guess i'm out and my brother Still to this day, cannot get him into a pool, <laughs> yeah. and he's forty-four or something. That uh, man, you know, yeah. like I, uh, I was, I was a personal trainer in Gainesville for a period, and uh, you know, obviously it's a big college town, and a lot of uh, a lot of ex-college athletes still still live in the town, and right. you know, it's amazing to see the former athletes who. They'd gone through that whole cycle of being burned out on the sport, and then they just completely fall off the rails, and you know, gain a bunch of weight and get way out of shape, and then you know, reach that point where they just can't handle it anymore. So they come back, you know, and they just sort of they cycle between these periods of being really obsessed and really focused, and uh, and complete burnout, you know. And yeah. it's it, uh, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to really push for something that's sustainable with with uh, you know the athletes I work with now. Uh, yeah. yeah, my son is on a uh, kids triathlon team. He started when he was about seven years old, I think. And when I saw them practice, I thought this was wonderful because they swim like three times a week, and they bike three times a week and run three times a week, maybe something like that, you know. Yeah. And yeah. they're learning all three sports. And teamwork and all all this great stuff, but uh, just like you know us, we adults in triathlon, if one of them has some sort of injury or you know gets a little bit tired, they just skip that thing, yeah. And they do yeah. the other thing for a while. And ha- knowing what my seeing what I, you know, and my brother went through, um, 
if my son says he's tired and doesn't want to go to a workout, I say, you're not going then. That's it. Yeah. You don't have to go. Um, I'd rather have you happy than being a, a 14. I had a friend that got burned out at, at swimming at age like 13. <laughs> he was yeah. done. He yeah. went to a, a state Coleman. champion. To, yeah. yeah. And I was like, that's just too much. Yeah, so. man. It, you know, it's, it's sad, but that, that happens the very best, you know. And I, I've yeah. worked with a lot of age group swim programs, and uh, it's, it's crazy the sort of pressure that those kids are under, you know, and uh, I, I don't, I don't think it has to be, doesn't have to be like that, you know. A lot, a lot of those kids are naturally talented anyway. They're going to be fast without all that pressure on them, you know. And, that is uh, true. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. true. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, let's let's uh, jump topics a little bit and talk about something that was really fascinating that you wrote up on your blog, and uh, it was about me and Tawny, and or it was about a lot of people, but uh, Tawny and I brought it to your attention about the uncoachable athlete, which I was reading this, and I've never before read something so much that was directed at me. <laughs> well, well let, let, let's, let's be up front and say yeah. that it's not just you, that oh, there are a lot of, uh, yeah. you know, a lot, a lot of athletes who that, that uh, post could have, could have applied to, for right. sure. And, and, okay, so then you, you brought it up, or you wrote it, and then I, I started, you know how like if um, you start driving a yellow car, then you start noticing all the yellow cars around, or, you know, uh, I just started noticing all these people now that offhandedly mentioned that they're uncoachable, yeah. and um, there's something to it, and your blog post really does describe it well, but um, I thought we'd go over that for a minute, like what makes a person uncoachable, and then also I'd like to ask you, like, is it something that is it permanent is it a is it a mindset that can change um i've got a i've got a theory um that after we talk about it for a little bit that i can i can put forth as well so where'd you come up with this uncoachable athlete syndrome i, I mean I, I don't think i invented it by any by any stretch of the imagination you know i, I think uh i think we're we as uh coaches who specialize in in age group triathlon are coaching a really, really unique population. Uh, um, you know, generally, the the athletes that I work with are typically very successful. You know, they're they're often they have their own business, or uh, you know, if if they don't have their own business, they're at the very top of their field in whatever profession they're they're in. You know, they're they're your typical type A sort of athlete, mm -hmm. and they're they're used to being in control of situation. Um, and, you know, coaching, I think by its very nature, it, it needs an athlete to come to it with an attitude that they want to learn something, that they want to be taught, that they don't, they don't know it all. They're willing to, you know, to kind of, uh, kind of admit that and, and, and come at it from that angle, you know, and, um, I think for that population, that's often very, very tough just cause, they're out of practice, you know, it's, it's not their normal dynamic in, in working with people. So it's, uh, it, it's a really, uh, really common and really interesting sort of, sort of dynamic to work with as a coach, you know, to, to try to, uh, try to encourage the athlete to, to kind of just be, be cool with that, you know, and, and be a little bit willing to, uh, willing to receive instruction, not be the, not be the alpha dog, you know, and it's, uh, 
it's always a challenge for, for you know, especially when you're working with with guys coming coming from that that perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think there's an, another aspect is there's definitely a, with me there's a there's a small mix of that, and then the other thing is the years and years of training, and then um, and knowing what what kept running through my head is Tony would suggest something, and I've already been down that road. <laughs> I'm like yeah. no, and and with the limited amount of time and getting older, and like the amount of time you have in a day to train, and then um, with uh, your limited career time left to try to get fast, it's kind of like the way I would feel is like no, I've already done that. That works for some people, right? This whatever whatever somebody might suggest. Okay, that works for some people. I've tried that. Doesn't work for me, and you're not going to get my full commitment on it. So I'm just going to go ahead and say no now, <laughs> so that we can cut that short because we're not going to get any success. I'm not all the way in on that weird thing. So I think there's there's also the um, like somebody that's already been trained incorrectly or correctly, right? A long time um, to it's like an old dog, like trying to teach an old dog new tricks. They're just going to sit there and go, yeah, I'm not so into that. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I I, t I totally do, you know, and, and I guess uh, I, I I agree with you, but my follow-up would be that a lot of athletes, their memory of themselves is not very good. Oh, you know? totally. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> they don't keep great details, and it's the epic successes and the epic failures that, mm -hmm. that they have good memories of, you know, and, um, you know, it, it comes back to that subjectivity thing where unless... Unless I see an athlete who comes to me with a lot of data and they're like, you know, I tried this back in this year and here's, here's my logs from that, here's what I did, here's the end result, you know, that, that's a different story and that's, that's really useful, you know, yeah. then that, it's great when an athlete has that sort of background, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, the whole subjectivity thing, because, uh, you know, oftentimes we're not really dealing with absolutes and um, you know, we're, we're not, it's not a controlled experiment. You know, there's always so much going on at different times within an athlete's life. So it's, it's really hard to make concrete conclusions on what works and what doesn't because, you know, it's all relative to what's going on at that particular time. So, um, yeah. yeah. yeah there's, there's the, the thing you mentioned about um, the, the memory being bad. Um, that goes, that leads to another problem where, we see this all the time where you have somebody that's middle-aged and they're really out of shape, but in their mind, they were a high school superstar, right? Yeah. And so they've already done that. And in their mind, they're, you know, fit and athletic. It kind of stays residual with them for a long time. And you're like, no, look in the mirror. <laughs> you're out of shape. You got you to gotta drop weight and get healthy again. You're like, well, back in high school, I was this, I know that. You're like, no, go try to do that now. You can't do it because you're out of shape. And it just shows how, like, your, your current mind is really influenced by your, your history and what you think. And yeah, your memories get, get um, crisscrossed. And it, uh, they say every time you, you recall a memory and you have it present in your mind, that it actually gets contaminated even more. That every time yeah, and it's, I mean, for, for that for that sort of athlete too, you know, it's often like an all or nothing proposition. It's like, well, I'm going to get back in shape, so I'm going to do an Ironman, I'm going to qualify for Kona, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be at the very best of the sport within a year sort of thing. You know, it, it's not a case of, well, I'm going to get back yeah. into shape. 
you know that that's step one let's just let's just do our 12 hour weeks whatever and then just kind of get the ball rolling and get back into shape and then and then look at more competitive goals a little further afield you know that right. uh well i'm yeah. not a i'm not a good swimmer unless i can swim a 21 second yard 50 yard freestyle again <laughs> because it's i true, did that though, isn't it? you know yeah. you have that perspective and it's yeah. uh yeah it's it's something that I think as we get older and we realize, well, it's kind of cool just being fit when you're in your 40s and being healthy and, you know, yeah. not having all these problems that, that everyone else is having that uh, you, you sort of realize that, well, you know, being in decent shape is, is still a good good thing. In your 40s and 50s, on, on up, being awesome, yeah. being awesome just means not having lower back pain. <laughs> you can, yeah, not be diabetic and not be, uh, you know. Yeah, I totally agree because uh, yeah. all my coworkers around me and and myself too, if I kind of lay off of things, start falling apart. Yeah. You know, and you got to stay on top of it. And uh, if I don't if I don't exercise on a regular basis, I get yeah back pain and shoulder pain and all kinds of stuff. So um, well, that's really cool that uh, we got to talk about that. The the um, what so let's say you have somebody that's uncoachable. Um, like, what steps do you take? To or say you find out yourself that you're uncoachable. I, my my thing that I wanted to tell you is I kind of rehearse myself uh, or ask myself, um, okay, if this one coach isn't working, what coach would, right? Yeah. And then you and then I said, okay, well if if Dave Scott told me how to train or Gordo, right? Then yeah. then I would probably listen. And then do probably I would totally try <laughs> and then, but then you got to ask yourself like why 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 does this one person make you do it and then but not somebody else and I I think like you have to a good coach is somebody that for you is somebody that really inspires you and gets you off your ass to do what they say. Yeah, I mean I I think I think you know for for the athlete you you really. When you go into a coaching relationship, you want to go into it with someone that you think knows more than you. You know, and, and that it sounds silly, but uh, a lot of a lot of athletes, I think, you know, particularly the type we're talking about, come into it with all of that knowledge that you're talking about. You know, they, they've been obsessed with the sport for a long period of time. They read all the magazines, they've read the books, and uh-huh. and maybe they don't really, in their heart of hearts, believe that whoever they're hiring knows more than they do. You know, it's more a, a case of, well, I should get a coach because... Check you know, the box. Yeah, check yeah. the box. Right. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, I could... I, I'm telling somebody, I said, anybody that's going to coach me and get me to, to do what they want, I can't afford. <laughs> so I guess I'm on my own. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, it would be like... Um, and, and, and in my case, it, for whatever weird reason, it would because I've thought about the top female coaches you know, as well. And I'm like, no, like it would have to be somebody that is so much like me, right? That when stuff starts coming apart, I would be able to tell them everything. And they would know, they would understand everything that I'm talking about. It'd have to be like my age, my gender, my, uh, my background as far as like years of doing it. And then uh, have kids and like really understand and, and working and try to understand like how to really put it all together. And, and I think there's something to that too. You know, I don't know if it necessarily has to be the coach themselves, but we all tend to specialize in a particular sort of demographic of athlete. You know, and uh, if if an athlete's always coaching, you know, small females, 
maybe they don't have the same level level of knowledge with with large males as, as some other some other coaches. You know, so yeah. it's uh, I think that's worth considering when you when you're looking around for sure. Yeah. So um, along with that with that post, um, I I noticed I'm, I'd been on your blog before looking at some other stuff that you'd written. You have a lot of cool calculators on your website that you've uh, put together, but um, the the really fascinating thing I found on your site with, that I found fascinating was that this metabolism analysis you've done for Kona qualifiers. And because there was all this talk, there has been for a while now, of optimizing your fat burning. And then you did research, you, you've, you've been doing research on athletes forever, it seems like. And with statistically, you kind of looked at um, being actually, what what is... What is the metabolism like for people that qualify for Kona versus every for age groupers that qualify for Kona versus everybody else? And you found that actually there was a breaking point. It seemed like of being too much fat burning um, limited limited the athlete. Uh, if I guess maybe their top speed or something like that that they would need to qualify for Kona. They could go all day, but it seems like they needed. Uh, you did it in grams of carbohydrate, and I, I did a little bit of short math and figured it seems somewhere around like 200 calories per hour um, of, of uh, carb burning seemed uh, optimal for, or what, what was, that's what was happening for your Kona qualifiers. Do you remember that blog post, and, and um, can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, the, at the level that, that age group triathlon is at now, you know, the athletes who qualify, they're, they're putting out a pretty significant output. You know, the larger athletes who, who are qualifying are, you know, maybe putting out 240, 250 watts on the bike. Right. Uh, you know, so it's, it's a big, big metabolic output that they're, uh, you know, that they have to have to fuel over the course of a very long day. And, um, you know, my I guess my my take is that we really need all of our energy systems contributing to that in order to make it happen. Um, you know, the fat, fat oxidation is is something that is incredibly uh, has a huge capacity, but doesn't have a lot of power. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that can can go on indefinitely and something that you know we see in ultra races and things like that are becoming emphasized more and more but when we're talking about something you know an event that's nine or ten hours um it's not enough the the sort of output that fat oxidation can fuel even in athletes who are ridiculously good um at at burning fat you know guys who are putting out 10 and 12 kcal per minute from from fat they need 15, 16, 17 kcal per minute output overall over the course of the race, you know, so they're still coming up short unless they have the ability to get it from somewhere else. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, on race day, of course, there's all this carbohydrate on course and, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it then. But a lot of athletes who take it to extremes become so detrained in their body's ability to use carbohydrate that their body freaks out, you know, and, and oftentimes they feel sick and, and, and mm-hmm. you know, their, their blood sugar does all these funky kind of, uh, you know, highs and lows when, when they begin to take it, you know, and it's something right. that I think the athlete needs to 
stay in touch with over the course of their preparation. Yeah, I, w- I was reading that, and uh, let's say you can take in about half as much on the run as you as you could on the bike, and and, and that's just see that could be an incorrect assumption right there as well if it's down in the two hundred calorie range. But so I was I was thinking like uh, so when I go out and do my long bike rides, I should try to eat maybe. 250, 300 calories per hour, and then on the run, um, 100, 150, or something like that. Should, should I be doing that in training, the, uh, the pretty much all my workouts, uh, longer workouts, or or what? What's the right mix? Of yeah, I mean, I running? think I think anything that's race pace, you know, which is which could be could be zone two for a you know for an age group athlete. Yeah, uh, if if you're if you're at Ironman intensity, then you should be fueling fueling as you will during the Ironman, you know. And and that that limiter is more uh, more a glucose transport limiter. You know, how much can you get across the gut wall and not have a whole bunch of solute kind of building up in your stomach over the course of the course of the race? You know, because that that is a limiter for a lot of people. You know, so I think you you have to experiment a little bit to to find exactly. Uh, you know, just just how much carbohydrate you can take in without ill effect, but uh, you, you can't ignore that. You know, and I, I see a lot of athletes who are looking to to maximize their fat burning are doing silly things like you know five hour rides on no calories. And, yeah, I did uh, one of those one time. That was so stupid. <laughs> I did a three hour ride in the heat, and then I had to go to the eye doctor because I was seeing spots yeah. um, the next day, and he said that I'd gotten so dehydrated that. Um, that my corneas or the back of my eyes were drying out. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I did I, I did one by virtue of the fact that I had a I had a blood test scheduled for later in the day. Oh. Of course, <laughs> I, you know I'm not going to do the sensible thing and just rest that day leading into the blood test. So I go out and do like a you know four hour fasted ride. Sure. And uh, and the blood test comes back and they think I'm like an alcoholic. You know, my liver enzymes are all screwed up, and they're like, well, you. You're in some seriously bad shape here, you know. You uh, that was that that was all that I did differently, you know. I just I did a ride where I essentially starved myself. Uh, so yeah, it's it's not not healthy. Yeah, it, that's a that's probably a definition of of exercise addiction at that point. <laughs> well, I'm still going to go for my four hour ride. I'm not going to reschedule anything because that four hour ride's coming. True, but you, you know half the list of the audience would do exactly the same thing. Yeah, They're, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've done it. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Um, I I personally had to kind of break through. I was so um, carb fueled and carb addicted that I had to do quite a quite a few workouts in a row with bringing nothing with me. To, and what, it was really weird, Alan, where it would I would bonk kind of partially into the workout, and then the next time I'd go for a workout, I'd bonk further into the workout and I would just kind of walk through the bonk until I kind of got on the other side of it and it was weird I pushed out my uh, my carbohydrate breaking point over workouts uh, over like a week or two out yep. to the point where it no longer affected me um, as I was doing also at the same like you said there's so many variables at the same time I was taking Tawny's advice and rearranging my food um, I was eating too close to workout, so all my all the um, all my blood was going to my stomach to all the sugar in my blood was going to my stomach to digest the food, and uh, it's just this weird. And then I was also taking plenty of caffeine before my workout, so like all this these uh, 
storms, all these waves happening at once, making this perfect storm. So I was like bonking, like 20 minutes into a workout. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think that that's, that's the key mistake that a lot of people make. You know, it's not... It's not so much about what they're doing during a workout and taking in too much sugar during the workout. It's, it's taking in sugar away from workouts, you know, and uh, I think in terms of improving an athlete's metabolism, that's where the greatest upside is, you know, changing their habitual yeah. diet. Well, let's, let's cover a couple more things. Um, there's a, I'm going to do an Ultraman, a self-supported Ultraman in October, and um, I wanted your input on uh, a couple of things uh the mix of long versus short workouts uh for one uh so i'm a i'm a fan of sammy inkinen's training in that there's not much of it <laughs> i don't know if you know who he is you know who he is right sure yeah, yeah i've spoken with sammy uh, a little bit and yeah. gonna have some of his data and stuff yeah and uh, but also everybody's different and he's apparently like a freakishly high responder to any kind of training at all if he lifts a pencil then the next thing he'll do is bench press 500 pounds it, it appears like with his body i think that would be a fake conclusion yeah yeah <laughs> so um I don't know if me or him posting his stuff is actually uh, helpful or harmful, but the uh, to normal people. But I, I I don't really know. I kind of fancy myself a fast responder, um, but or high responder, I guess. But that's a want, you know. That's not really a fact. So we, I don't really know that for sure. But I do like his style of working out of of intervals with lots of rest, and then the occasional long. Uh, workout and do you think and it's kind of like the occasional is is just to check in you know and practice your pacing and your fueling yeah. and it, a long a five-hour bike ride really doesn't uh, have much value whatsoever as far as improving you but shorter workouts do um, do you do you think that that's truthful at all or just depends on the person you try it and kind of see if it works for you or uh, something that just doesn't work, except for it's just really rare individuals. Yeah, I don't think that that works long term for for most athletes. You know, and there's certainly exceptions to every rule. But uh, you know, the the benefits that you get from high intensity training are, are different and admittedly quicker, but but different to the benefits that you get from from base training. You know, and mm -hmm. um, I, I think that. Over the long term, uh, it, it all comes back to the the base that the athlete has established, you know. And, and Sammy, obviously, you know, is a good example of someone who's who does have a good base, you know, coming coming from a road background, and uh, he, he has done some serious miles in the past, you know, which which is always it's always worth looking at it in that context of where these athletes are coming from. Yeah, I think if if you read his stuff, it should always be like. I have a, a header above it that says, this is how somebody that was already really, really fast got faster. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's absolutely true. You yeah. know, and I think, I think for that sort of athlete who has that base established and maybe has been doing a lot of long stuff, oftentimes they'll lose touch with the top end, you know, and, and the, their response will slow down because that, that they're just narrowing that gap between their, you know, their very high end performance and their, their regular sort of performance, and at that time, it makes sense to try and widen that gap, you know. But um, yeah, I, I, 
I think for most athletes, the opposite of that is true. They have much more top end than they have base. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about um, sodium. Um, in Texas right now, you know, it's high humidity where I train, and and oh my gosh, like you know, heat index basically is humidity plus plus the uh, t temperatures, you know, well over 100, 105, 120 sometimes. And um, I think my biggest limiter, a lot of our listening audience, especially now here in the summer, our biggest uh, limiter is uh, hydration. And along with that, you know, is the sodium uh, and electrolytes to get that hydration where it needs to go. And I think a lot of us are probably familiar with the whole you know, go out and work out and then weigh yourself, weigh yourself before and weigh yourself after to see how much you're actually losing. But I think there's a lot of confusion on, on how much sodium or electrolyte uh, that people should be adding. It, and is it something that, is there a set number or is it different per person? And is it set no matter how much you drink or is it always per it should be a set amount of sodium per liter, for example, that you drink. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it it is very individual, um, and it's it's a it's a really tricky topic for the ultra endurance because if you get it wrong on either side, then you're in trouble. Um, you know, and, and if you get it wrong on the side of taking in too little sodium for the amount that you're drinking of, of pure water and um, you know, hydrating, you can be in real trouble with, with hyponatremia. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a number that you kind of want to get right. Um, you know, especially for the more serious athlete who, um, you know, is maybe more focused on competitive outcome, um, you know, and, and less focused on their body during the course of those events. Um, you know, so I, I think, I think it's a really important, really important metric to have tested, honestly. For, uh, for ultra athletes, um, and and that would be that would be my best advice. Would be if, you know if someone is serious about dialing in their their hydration strategy and dialing in their their sodium intake to actually have a, have a sweat test at a, at a lab, you know where they they actually analyze the content of uh, of sodium in in the sweat that uh, that you're you're uh, expelling, sort of thing. So. Um, that that would be best case. Um, next best case would be uh, roundabout figures. I think almost everybody should be taking in at least a gram an hour um, during during a long event. And if you if you get that wrong, then you know you, you'll tend to feel it. You'll be still very thirsty, and you might notice some swelling and things like that. You know, so it's something that you can probably feel out if you're overdoing it. But if uh, yeah, if, if you're underdoing it, then it's a little bit more scary because you can, you know, it's a little bit more of a switch. You, you just kind of you become disoriented, and you can maybe think it's heat stroke, but it's not heat stroke, and uh, you know that that kind of situation is something you want to avoid. So the gram the gram per hour is just average, and you got to park. Yeah. There's there's somebody rearranging chairs all around. Sure. <laughs> but the. Uh, the gram per hour, would you mix that in with your water ahead of time? Or is if you're taking it as a salt pill, um, is that different? Uh, yeah, so, so most uh, most sports drinks won't be anywhere close to that, you know, just just because they don't want to taste that bad. 
Um, if you if you put like a gram in a liter of fluid, it, it tastes very salty. It doesn't taste very good at all. So generally, I think the best bet is to to do what you can in the water that's still not going to you know prove prove unpalatable. It's going to be something that you're actually going to want to drink over the course of the race, and then to do the rest of it in, in salt tabs. Um, you know, so you you might be half and half depending on what mix you're using. Um, you know, and obviously you can you can customize that if you're using something like Infinite, or you can customize it yourself and just add a little bit of salt to, to your regular mix. Um, another question is maybe you can put to rest if, if you know, <laughs> maybe you really do know the whole salt, the white on your outfit after doing a, uh, a race or a long training day. Yeah. And the big question, hold on, let's let this helicopter go. Man. I really feel like I'm in a war zone. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Better behave myself. Oh. We'll edit all this out. It'll be great. Sure. Uh, the um, so these when athletes finish a workout or or a uh, race and their outfits caked in salt, the big argument is, you know some people say well that means that they're a salty sweater, and then other people say well that's because you you digested so much salt anyway that your body's trying to get rid of it. So do you? Do you have a insight on the which which that really is? Is your body like extracting it no matter what, or it's a reflection of how much you ate? No, you, you're never going to take in. You, you're never going to take in more salt than what you're expelling. You know, so if uh, yeah, if you're if you're seeing a lot of, I mean, not that that's uh, it's not easy to quantify. You know, just how much salt you're you're expelling by how much is on your outfit, sort of thing. But uh, but no, it's definitely definitely coming from the sweat that you're uh, that, that you're expelling over the course of the event, you know. And uh, I mean, just just as a kind of general rule of thumb, I, w I would say that the athletes who I see the most caked in salt also tend to have the highest, uh, you know, sodium sweat rates as well. You know, so uh, com complete. Um, non-scientific correlation there, but uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Okay, cool. All right, well, that's that's all I've got uh, for you right now. <laughs> I've really enjoyed having you on. And yeah, uh, no, it was it was great, man. We'll definitely do it do it again in the yeah, future. Yeah, I'm hoping that we get some questions. Uh, people, um, we'll have you uh, give your uh, how to find you here in a second, and. Um, and then when people have more questions, we can answer them on the show. Um, as we get closer to me doing this Ultraman, self-supported Ultraman, uh, we're going to get really way into the science because it's going to take a whole lot of science to get me to that finish line. <laughs> I wanna... Yeah, I, uh, I, have, uh, I have an athlete making his comeback this year. He was, he was second overall in uh, the Ultraman World Championships in 2011. So he's oh, wow. going back again this year. So uh, Ultraman will definitely be at the forefront of my mind over the next few months, that's for yeah. sure. And I think with me, um, the, the hydration and the sodium is, is huge because one, it's a major limiter for my training right now, right? Yeah. Um, if I'm just, I feel exhausted the day after a big day because of I didn't drink or didn't absorb enough hydration, then that undercuts what I could do that day. And then um, because Ultraman's not a, um, it's not a one-day event. 
Um, I, I, I think it's critical that on day one, day two, and even through day three, especially, I mean, every single day, I'm going to have to have hydration nailed. Um, because it's just going to keep piling up on me if I start getting dehydrated. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, that, those tests to do a proper kind of sodium wash at a, at a university lab, they're not cheap, but in yeah. terms of kind of prioritizing testing for a, for an ultra-athlete, it's, it's a test that I think has a lot of value. Cool. So you think they probably have something like that at Texas A&M? Oh, I'm sure they would. Yeah, yeah, just check in with the exercise physics department, and I'm sure they... Uh, they would have one or they could point you to okay. to a week. Cool. Okay. Well, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, they can check out my uh, my website, alancousins.com. Uh, uh, yeah, if people have questions, they can email me, uh, alan at enduranceCorner.com. Um, and also check out enduranceCorner.com. We have a lot of great resources for, uh, for age group athletes there. So. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Brett. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. All right. Thank you very much, Alan. I wrote down a bunch of his advice and will be using it for training for my own self-supported Ultraman in October. And I've got somebody joining me that's going to try to do it as well. And like I said in the interview, hydration is my big limiter down here in hot, hot Texas. We've got temperatures um, heading over 100 degrees and I'm supposed to go out and bike in that stuff on a regular basis, like Ultraman volume. I mean, that's crazy. So I'm definitely going to use uh, what he said. And like uh, he said, uh, there's great ways to find him and get in touch with him. So I really appreciate him being on the show. Let's go ahead and talk about donations to Zentry. If you want to be, I'm going to start calling uh, supporters of Zentry uh, Zinjas. You're a Zinja, part of the tribe. And you can support Zentry if you find the practical, pragmatic, down-to-earth, simple advice that I give you to make your triathlon training so much easier, so much more effective, and so much more real and fulfilling and uh, lets you become the athlete that you've always wanted to be, then you can support the show, Zentri, by going to zentriathlon.com and scrolling down, and there is a link on the left side for PayPal donations to the show, and bandwidth is not cheap and uh, SoundCloud is not cheap. Website's not cheap. This stuff all adds up and your support not only keeps the show on the air, but it's also a vote that you like what I'm doing and it keeps it coming. I absolutely love doing it with the uh, feedback that I get that you support the show. So this episode's supporters are Brett Hoyer and also Dustin who sent in an email and he said, just as advertised, bought 10. Oh, he's talking about Hornet Juice. We'll get to that in a second. On the first order, and this stuff is amazing. Just did 52 miles on one packet and some UCAN. And one Amarita bar, of course. Love the pod. And then I think six exclamation points. Let me count. If you put a whole bunch of exclamation points, I read them off. One, two, three, four, five exclamation points. Way to go, Dustin. And uh, Simon Wright and John Taylor. Connor Sanders, Richard Stewart, Jonathan Woodman, and Hun Chu. What's up, Hun? How's it going, dude? And the, um, yeah, the, the Hornet Juice is absolutely amazing. It's an amino acid packet that, uh, so if you, 
another thing you can do is you can go to zentrathlon.com and scroll down and there's a link to Hornet Juice. And you can buy like 10 pack, 20 pack, 30 pack. What happens is, is people buy a 10 pack, you know, to kind of try it. And then they come back and go, holy crap, I need a 60 pack. <laughs> and I send it all over the world. It is such an awesome seller because all it is is an amino acid uh, supplement. It's like 60 calories. So it's not the carbs. It's actually the protein, the amino acid in it that turns on your body's uh, signaling to start burning body fat for fuel. And one packet lasts an hour and a half in your training. So you take a little bit before you get going if you want, or you can take it, you know, during. And uh, and then also along as you go. And, you know, like use it for, like, your longer workouts and, and races. And you will find that you just feel like a diesel engine. It's absolutely amazing how well it works. And, yeah, you just add it in with your other, with your other fuel. And it's the, uh, it's the special blend of amino acids. It's the ratio of, of certain ones to others that replicates the craziest thing in nature, which is the Japanese killer hornet is the most powerful, longest-flying insect uh, discovered by science uh, for its body weight. And you have monarch butterflies fly you know, forever, but they don't weigh anything. A Japanese killer hornet is huge and heavy, and it flies a long way on body fat that it stores up. And so the, the mad scientists behind uh, Hornet Juice sat down and figured out the, uh, the amino acids that, that uh, burn this body fat, that turn, the, turn the, the hornet into a fat-burning machine and then replicate it in a lab. And so basically, that's why, that's why they call it Hornet Juice. You are eating <laughs> synthetic Japanese killer hornet uh, amino acids from their saliva it's absolutely crazy and it absolutely works it's so cool so you can support if you get some hornet juice then you're actually helping yourself become a better athlete and have better results and you're helping zentri at the same time because every order that goes through hornet juice you get an email from me that says thank you and then you can email me all the questions that you want and also because now you have my email address and then also you are uh hornet juice gives me just a tiniest bit of kickback uh, for every order, and that helps keep the show on the air. So we both win. You get something, I get something, we all get something. We all get to be better athletes, and we get to use something really cool that comes from New Zealand. You get the package from New Zealand with some cool postage. It's pretty neat. And uh, I have to say every episode, this is not used, it's only used for triathlon and endurance sports, not for uh, your crazy sex sexcapades in your garage or whatever you do in your spare time. That's your own personal business. And every time I say that, people order more of it. <laughs> Y'all are some weirdos out there. Okay, now let's see. We have uh, one last sponsor before we get into the uh, training log. The training log is where I tell you everything that I've been doing lately. I take the mic along with me and do some stuff. And um, this episode's training log is really fun. I take you with me walking along the side of a highway as I walk everywhere to, um, while I'm here in San Diego to go to dinner, I walk six miles to eat dinner one night. I walk two miles to eat dinner another night, um, climb this huge hill. I walk through the gay district of uh, San Diego to go eat dinner and, um, drink some beer, you know, um, I'm on vacation. So I'm trying not to train. I got a little bit of plantar fasciitis in my feet. I'll probably talk about that. And talk about the trail running and, the, and oh, I don't bring my bike with me on this trip, um, which is kind of, I did it on purpose uh, because of Zen and I wanted to simplify and just all the drama with bringing a bike and all the money that it costs, I could use to um, Kai, my son, 
wants uh, a set of race wheels for racing. And, um, you know, it's a choice. Do I bring a bike with me so I can have fun? Or do I uh, be a responsible dad and a grown-ass man and, uh, you know, buy stuff for my, my son uh, to give him uh, a better better life than my own? So that was all that coming in the training log. And that is brought to you by Chris Haig Racing. And Haig is like the Haig, H-A-G-U-E. And Chris is an awesome athlete, awesome coach. I'm super excited that he reached out to me to ask if um, he could put ads on the show for his coaching. And it turns out, actually, he's working really well. I got some great feedback that uh, people love him. He went to University of the South at Sewanee and ran on the track team. I almost swam on their swim team. And then... um, Let's see, what else did he do? Uh, oh, he worked in a triathlon shop in the D.C. area. So he really knows his stuff, and he's a school teacher, so he really knows how to help and instruct and make sure that you are absorbing the data that he is giving you from his brain so that he can coach you and get you really great results. And you know what? On top of it all, he is like the greatest personality whatsoever. He's super, super helpful and friendly, and I uh, just love working with him. Uh, all the way around. So again, that's chrishagracing.com. Chris Hague, H-A-G-U-E, racing.com. All right, that's enough of this stuff. Let's go ahead and get started with the training log. Just a lot of variety of different things. I think there's some swimming stuff in there too. And yeah, all kinds of cool stuff. All right, here we go with the training log. You are entering the Zentrite training log zone. Kuneli. <laughs> Hi everybody, my name is Brett, I'm a triathlete. I decided it's time I got some friends more suited to my status. But Joe, we've been friends for years. Hey, we all make mistakes. Come on dudes, let's go exercise! Exercise! Yeah! I'm gonna do sit-ups till I poop myself! Alright, welcome to a new training hub. Stardate. July 17th, Capsula. Approaching planet, swimming pool. And, man, I have something cool to help your swimming that I just figured out. I'm super, super stoked about. Hold on, I'm trying to figure out how to drive Emily's car, which I had to borrow today. And it all goes back to an article about uh, Sun Yang, who's this incredible swimmer who swims so fast in the Olympics. He's from China. And he swims with such ease. It looks like he's not even trying. And a nice, easy turnover rate. Uh, it's just miraculous watching him him swim, whatever's going on there. And there was an article on Swim, Swam, Swam, or Swim, Swam, whatever, the big swimming website, where somebody had written an opinion about <laughs> he's basically so good. <laughs> They're trying to compare him to an emperor penguin. And what an emperor penguin does, because um, he's so good, it's we've left. We have to maybe consider that he's not human, <laughs> some kind of alien. But uh, an emperor pig, penguin, when it's on on uh, land or on an iceberg, it uh, fluffs up its feathers, and it has a layer of feathers that traps air underneath. And then. Uh, when a leopard seal tries to attack one, or maybe when it needs a burst of speed to not just escape, but also maybe to grab a fish, 
it squeezes its feathers down and release releases this burst of micro bubbles that um, cuts down the resistance. Now it's swimming through uh, foamy water, like air water, instead of just water water, and uh, the resistance is much much less and much less like it can swim like three times faster than before when it does this and so this person was theorizing that uh sun yang was doing something with his with his breathing out where a trickle of air bubbles was being released where he was swimming through um, micro bubbles of air much like uh, an emperor penguin is doing and maybe that has something to do with uh, how he's so fast. And there's all this video of Sun Yang swimming, which is... You want to see Sun Yang, maybe it's 2008 Olympics. Uh, <laughs> 1,500 meters. <laughs> it's, in, it's incredible. And the, uh, the, the theory works along like that, right? And, it says, and then the person said, well, but it's okay. I mean, we just don't know. But it's, it's at least an idea you know, something that's going on. Um, and it looks like maybe it applies. So anyway, I read that a couple days ago and then I went swimming this morning. And while I was swimming, I thought, oh man, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try blowing a stream of air bubbles under my chest so that it's, uh, straight down below me so that as I swim over it, it kind of wraps around me and maybe creates like this, uh, you know, pocket of micro bubbly air that I'm swimming through and uh, maybe it'll make me faster right and that's one thing and that's its own separate thing but what I discovered is while I'm doing this and trying to blow air down um, below me forcefully so that it travels back further without just wrapping around my head and escaping behind me and not being of much use you know I want it to kind of cavitate around my body a little bit well while I was doing this, I realized, you know, I started pursing my lips, like blowing out my cheeks and making a small hole with my mouth so that the bubbles, I could force them down further and so they would end up being more useful to the rest of my body um, as they wrapped around me. And you, if uh, you're swimming without something over your torso, or maybe if you're a girl and you're swimming in a two-piece, you can feel, you know, the bubbles kind of trickling down across your belly button before they... Um, escape around you and <clears throat> so I'm doing that and then I realize something that is really really interesting um, when you purse your lips to blow out air uh, you're doing something that's very very useful for oxygen consumption to maximize your oxygen intake notice when you run and you run harder and harder and faster and harder that what do you start doing? You start uh, making a smaller and smaller hole with your mouth and then blowing your cheeks out. And what you're, what's, what that's doing is on your out breath, you're pushing, you're making the hole smaller so that when you push out, you're creating higher pressure inside your lungs. And that higher pressure drives more oxygen out of the air that's in your lungs in across the membrane in your lungs and into your bloodstream right so it's higher pressure and well I'm trying to avoid a bird that's in the road and that makes your breathing 
uh, much, much more efficient. And you can tell, it's, it's funny, all humans do this. It's so bizarre that we do this. And the, because uh, you would think if this didn't work, well, the faster you'd run, wouldn't you just open your mouth bigger and bigger to consume more oxygen? Right? And just, but try it. Try to run as hard as you can, but hang your mouth open as wide as you can and then breathe really hard and watch what happens. Nothing. Like, <laughs> you'll probably pass out because you need more air than that, more oxygen to cross the, uh, lung, bar- the lung membrane. And so, again, you're pursing. What's effective is to purse your lips and blow out through the smallest hole uh, to get uh, that air pressure up. Right? So, I started doing that while swimming along uh, casual to moderate um, for a whole different reason, you know, to try to swim like a penguin, like a Sun Yang emperor, emperor penguin. So it was accidental why, why I was doing this. Um, but what I found was my ability level, my perceived effort uh, started to drop very, very much, you know, from like a uh, seven down to like a three because I was getting more and more oxygen uh, sooner and better than ever before. And uh, so I figured this out about halfway through my hour swim practice. For And then for the second half hour, I started working with this, trying to analyze like what was, what was going on and how to maximize this. And what I figured out was, oh, and then there's something else. Every time you stick your head up to get a breath to get more oxygen, uh, if you're a good swimmer, you turn it to the side. But anyway, it creates a little bit of drag. It's inefficient. Um, you need air, but getting air uh, has a penalty. Um, so the less you have to come up for air, the, uh, the faster you go. Well, if you maximize your air intake, your air efficiency then uh, you have to come up for air less frequently there and then you'll be faster right so all these things started combining together basically what i figured out was on the out breath if you purse your lips no matter how fa- that's the trick no matter how fast you're going or actually no matter how slow you're going if you get in the habit of pursing your lips blowing out your cheeks and and uh, letting the air out pushing hard, but letting the air out slowly, you create very high pressure in your lungs and you're getting uh, more oxygen transfer. And then you can swim bilaterally or even less frequently than that. And you're not struggling for air. And with that, instead of swimming uh, single-sided breathing, now you're getting air uh, on both sides, um, but less frequently. And you're more uh, aerodynamic or hydrodynamic, I don't know what the word is, uh, through the water because you're not sticking your head up as much anymore. And then maybe possibly this whole air trickling bubbles thing is making you faster as well. I don't know. But <laughs> I was just like, holy crap. Like the, uh, the feeling you get throughout your muscles is like, I could swim like this forever. The, the, um, and it's fast. And the, uh, the need for oxygen, the need to breathe just drops significantly and you settle into a really nice pull uh, that feels strong and wonderful 
And anyway, all this really, really great stuff. So I want I want you to try it and report back to me on Zen Triathlon on Twitter or send me an email at texafornia, T-E-X-A-F-O-R-N-I-A at gmail.com and tell me your experience or comment on the blog at zentriathlon.com and tell me your experience with trying this because what I was doing before was I was breathing out, you know, normally, uh, swimming casually. And then, um, then if I started swimming really hard, you know, I got to the point where I needed to, um, do the pursing lip thing, breathing. And, uh, that's fine. But, uh, everything has, every, everything in swimming has to do with technique and little tricks here and there that are counterintuitive and stuff that you wouldn't think because, you know, water isn't our natural environment. So we got to think completely differently and do stuff that uh, works differently. And let me know, try it. And again, this is, this is the other thing I figured out too. Uh, I love Zen because you could, you just learn to pay attention and not judge and just see what works. Oh my God, it's so great. But so I'm swimming along and I'm doing um, the pursed lip, blowed out cheeks, uh, exhales, right? Inhale doesn't matter. Make a big mouth, suck in all the air you want. But then you do this on the uh, exhale and um, feeling wonderful and the uh, needing to take fewer breaths but still swimming the same or faster. And then um, the, other, the other thing for people that struggle with flip turns and getting water up your nose, I wanted to give you a tip because I was really paying attention to this. Like, what are, what are people doing exactly to flip turn and not get water up their nose? And I can tell you, when you flip and you start going upside down or anytime you get this problem where water might run up your nose, the trick that people that can do it uh, successfully is they're letting a very, very small trickle of air out their nose. Um, and that creates uh, back pressure against the water that's trying to run up your nose. Uh, so you can practice it just at, at your desk at work or while you're just driving your car or whatever, take a big breath and then let a very slow trickle of air out your nose. And that'll keep water from running up your nose when you're doing the flip. So you learn to do it while you're flipping and while you push off and then you're good to go. Okay. That's it. I got to go into W to the ERK. Uh, everybody, uh, work on your swimming and try to be like a penguin. <laughs> oh, this sport is crazy, isn't it? All right. Well, hey, dudes. I'm walking along a little access road in Hotel Circle in San Diego. And the freeway is about 50 yards to my left. And it's not that loud because it's pretty much at a traffic jam, light standstill. And I'm just walking through parking lots and sidewalks on the way to go eat dinner. It's about 5... 13 in the afternoon and I did something uh, I made a Zen decision so a Zen decision decision and decided to not bring my bike on this trip I started boxing it up and then decided it was uh, just too much work too much money I'd rather have that three hundred dollars it was going to cost at least to uh, bring my bike. I could have brought a scooter actually and uh, just decided to not spend it 
and not bring a bike this trip and just go through the challenge of uh, seeing what that's like. I need to take a little bit of a break from training. And when I uh, first got here, I went trail running on Saturday with Morgan. And it's kind of muddy. Just went for an hour. Pretty easy. It was a lot of vert, a lot of climbing, but pretty easy. And then um, on Sunday, went for an hour swim. And now we're at uh, Wednesday. And I haven't done anything now for three days. And uh, it's nice. Taking a little bit of a break and walking everywhere. So I can tell you how I'm doing it. Uh, get on Google Maps. Put a point where you are. Put a point to where you go. Want to go. And see how far it is. And you can estimate about 21 minutes per mile on flat ground. And it'll tell you. You can switch it over to walking mode. And uh, so Monday night, I walked up from Hotel Circle up to Hillcrest, the Whole Foods in Hillcrest, which is the gay district. And they just had Pride Week, I think last week. So it was full on rainbow everything all the time, which is fun. And uh, I, went, I walked to Whole Foods because you can, you know, get stuff at the uh, salad bar, food bar, buffet bar, whatever, and get your groceries. And... Then you just sit down at a small table, you know, after you check out, just eat your stuff. Well, I I get there, <laughs> and they've added a bar to the Whole Foods, the 7th, 7th Avenue or 7th Street Bar, and it's good. And they have food there that was phenomenal, and they had specials. And so I'm drinking microbrew ale, and... Uh, taking a break from everything. I brought my laptop with me. Did I? Maybe not the first day. I think I just enjoyed a beer or two. Well, it's definitely two. And then did my grocery shopping and walked back. And it's a 700 foot climb on this. At least a 700. That's right. Let's say a 700 foot climb to get up to Hillcrest from my hotel in my three mile walk. And then, uh, That was, uh, yeah, that was last night. And then yesterday, Morgan came to hang out with me. He said, hey, I want to have some beers, and then we talk about business stuff. Computer programming, websites, and uh, lots of fun stuff. And, uh, and eat dinner, but have a few beers first. And I said, uh, ah, cool, let's... Um, where do you want to go? And he goes, I don't know. And I go, I don't know. And we did that whole back and forth, I don't know thing for a while. <laughs> and I said, hey, let's go to the gay bar up, <laughs> up at Whole Foods. <laughs> and uh, it, it was solid rainbows, the whole thing, in and out. And Morgan said, nah, dude, we won't get anything done in there. Like, like stand up and work on computers and I go no dude there's tables and you can order food and it's Whole Foods food like it's good and uh, so we kind of thought about it for a little bit and uh, said okay let's go try it so we drove up there parked on the roof and then went to the 7th street bar and uh, 
I don't know if it's a gay bar or not. It's just in the in the gay district, so um, I don't know what classifies as a gay bar anyway. But the uh, here's your siren. Oh, block traffic. Anyway, we uh, sat up there and worked on stuff, and it was really cool, man. Um, he was blown away. He was like, man, there's like tables. We could... There was more children in there because it's a grocery store than there were adults, it seemed like. About 50-50, maybe. And, uh, dude, it was just really good getting projects done, work done. So then today I wanted to go do something different. And uh, I'm here with coworkers, but I come every year to this thing in San Diego, it seems like. And they're younger, young couple, and I want them to go have fun. So I'm like, y'all take, every night, I'm like, y'all take the car, I'll figure out the rental car that we have. I'll figure my way out. The challenge of being resourceful, you know? And I'm in this Zen mode where I've simplify and it was way nicer flying with one suitcase instead of a suitcase and a bike and then assembling things and honestly it's, it's it could have gone either way a bike would be really really nice but um i was also worried about you know if i brought the bike well, then i've got to lock it like crazy because it's a nice road bike it gets stolen so i'm just uh i figured i'd try it doing everything on foot you don't know until you try you know and uh, so I know that there's I've had um, I've had dinner out here with Long Runner on Twitter last summer at a restaurant at the mall, the Fashion Valley Mall. And I'm like, well, that the and it was really good, like really healthy options. And I think he's vegan, so it's just nice, like really healthy meal with lots of greens and stuff. And. So, I was like, well, from my hotel, um, okay, if it's, if it's three miles again, I don't know, because that took 45 minutes, 40 minutes plus each way. That was a long walk, and so I could totally feel like what, you know, this, the hardship of, um, poor, of poorer people, you, know, you can never get anything done because you're having to work so hard to get it, just the basics done. You know, you just want water or you just want food. You got to walk three miles, six miles, ten miles, you know, just to get food for, for your village. You don't have time to get an education or anything because you're freaking walking everywhere. So there's like a breaking point, a threshold of, um, you know, where being disadvantaged just screws you over. You know, so I'm like, I got stuff to do to make money. You know, I got work and I got coaching and I've got whatever I do and uh, rest and recuperation. And so if it's like 45 minutes each way just to eat dinner, I'm like, well, I don't know. So, but I got on Google Maps, popped it open. It's a mile to my, um, to this restaurant at the, at the mall. And there's a walking, semi-safe walking area to get there, like sidewalk. So, here I go. I'm going to the mall. Get some time on my feet. A little bit of walking and exercise. That's not really true exercise. And a little bit of thinking time. So I'm going to get off the mic. I'm purposefully walking and not listening to any podcasts or anything so that I can um, think of what I want to do next. 
I got things I got to knock out. So I'll be back. Bueno. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. I'm back in my hotel room. You can probably tell by the echo. <laughs> is there a is there a way for it not to echo? I don't know. But anyway, I had a really great dinner at this uh, True Food Kitchen was the name of the restaurant that I hopped in. And uh, so many things, man, so many things not to be afraid of. Uh, when I got my ass sent off to military school, we used to hitchhike along the highway uh, to get into town. And I was, I was 14 years old and turned on uh, in, in a week. I went from 14 years old to being a grown-ass man because it was like prison. I had to fight for myself, fight for everything, uh, be on guard, and also earn all my friends uh, with no money, just who you are, and no cool clothes, nothing. They shave your head, and um, they, they start teaching you to uh, attack your fears and become uh, really uh, brave in the heart. And if something scares you, that that's actually something that you ought to start working on. It's Marine Corps military school. And I wasn't even the youngest guy there. You know, I was, I was a sophomore, starting my, but I was young for my grade. So I was 14, and uh, there was kids there in eighth grade, man. Really, really rough in South, South Texas on the border of Mexico. And uh, boarding school 24-7, um, no going home, nothing. And, uh, yeah, so we used to hitchhike along the side of the highway uh, if we managed to get what they call liberty, which is weekend time to um, go into town. And it's a shitty town, you know, Harlingen <laughs> in the 80s. And uh, we would walk into town and get in trouble and stuff. But uh, uh, coming to San Diego now, uh, 20 something years later, 25 years later, um, walking along the side of the highway, uh, a lot of time to think, you know, and uh, a lot of times to practice your bravery to get stuff done. And a lot of times remembering what it's like to have to do everything on foot and, um, then enjoying the, the little things that come to fruition when, uh, when, uh, and the self-confidence, you know, of being able to do shit yourself, man. And so I'm walking through the mall because the, it's an open air mall. They have lots of these in San Diego because it never rains. And uh, I got a guy trying to think he's all cool and harass me, trying to sell me some stuff. And I'm like, dude, back off, you know, like <laughs> I don't need your hand lotion right now. I'm good. And, uh, uh, you know, the self-confidence of, of uh, having done something all on your own instead of being spoon-fed uh, leads you to, uh, to uh, you know, a mission accomplished, kind of get stuff done, and uh, it gives you energy to keep doing more and more and more, and to be self-sufficient, you know. And uh, way before I went to uh, military school, I was in the uh, Boy Scouts, and I was in a a high adventure Boy Scout troop where we went uh, backpacking in the Rockies and in swamps and and uh, weekend three, four-day weekend trips of wilderness survival where it gets below freezing at night and you have all the only clothes you can bring with you are what you can fit in your pockets, which is almost nothing. And if you want to eat, here's a rabbit in a cage and you have to kill the rabbit to eat. If if, if you don't want to eat, don't. You know, and they had a block of cheese, a rabbit, a raw egg, um, and a chicken. <laughs> if you... you and that's that's your food for like it was like three days, four days, something like that. I was covered in so many ticks by the end of it. I'd pluck a chicken, 
you know, um, had to, had to uh, oh, my God. It just goes on and on. But anyway, being self-sufficient, you know, you forget your food on one of these campouts, one of these backpacking trips, well, you're going to go hungry. And then after a while, I got promoted to uh, being a patrol leader and in charge of like seven to 12, 13 kids younger than me and making sure that they had food and that they had tents and stuff like that. And uh, when we'd go camping, and I remember one camp out, I forgot, so I, I don't know how I managed to forget, but I forgot um, one of the tents. And so, uh, you know, this whole crap with, um, you know, leaders eat last, you know, like that's such a, that's such a hardship. No, dude, leaders sleep on the freaking ground in uh, 35 degrees with raccoons crawling all over the goddamn place um, while with no tent because they forgot their stupid tent because they forgot somebody else's tent. And um, the uh, the kid that's, you know, four years younger than you, that's a tenderfoot, uh, basically just barely beyond a, a, a Cub Scout, now a Boy Scout, he sleeps in a tent while you uh, suck it up. So... I uh, walked back from the mall and was really enjoying my walk and uh, dodging cars. I had to walk under a freeway and, again, saw uh, people actually fishing out of the San Diego River, which is like a creek, and it's nothing but pollution and runoff. Um, So, again, saw people living a uh, tough life under there. Um, But while I was in the mall, actually, I did – oh, this is another thing. So you learn confidence and you you, uh, um, – take ownership in yourself and you learn bravery. I remember uh, at um, military school, uh, on rare occasion, we get a chance to go in the town and go to the mall, the Harlingen Mall, and there would be girls, you know, and uh, we would start, you know, you want to ask a girl out to, <laughs> out to what, basically, but just to hang out. And uh, so we started practicing hitting on girls, asking them out on dates and uh, some of my best friends, um, who I'm actually going to hang out with a couple of them again at the end of the summer, um, we taught each other the bravery to ask questions and see what happens. And it is so amazing what happens when you ask, you know. So I went from, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm too afraid to ask a girl, to just going up and asking a, a girl, uh, hey, what are you doing after you get off work? Right? Oh, I don't know. What? <laughs> You're surprised. They go, uh, oh, I've got a boyfriend. And you're like, okay, cool. But if you change your mind about your boyfriend, we'll be over here. And uh, we'll come back later. Just wave at me if, uh, if when I come back later, you're still interested. And sometimes they waved, you know. And sometimes they, uh, you know, wanted to go out on a date right then. And, but it, that's all besides the point. The point is, is you learn to ask uh, because you never know what the other person's going to say. And there's no harm in asking because you don't even know what the answer is going to be. It may be yes or some some version of no, but some other option that you never thought of. So I'm walking through this mall, and they have a Tesla. You know, everybody's just kind of not everybody. You know, there's like five people kind of standing around and just looking at it. You know, wow, wow, and uh, just just looking at this Tesla, and the hood's open, and there's no engine in the front. Um, and there's no engine. <laughs> there's no engine in the back either. It's just like it's batteries and electric motors that are really low slung. So the front has cargo area uh, under the hood, and the uh, trunk is really big inside. And these things go zero to sixty in like three seconds now. It's they're amazing, and they're uh, like seventy thousand dollars to start. And I said uh, there was a woman standing by it, and 
Um, just like asking for a ride, walking down the highway in uh, Harlingen, Texas, just like asking the girl out for the uh, date. I, uh, I asked this, this uh, girl, I said, hey, can I sit in it? <laughs> I've asked this before and managed to sit in Ferraris and shit. <laughs> and they, she said, absolutely. And I said, oh, cool. So how do, I, uh, how do I get in it? I know that the handles pop out when you, get, when you do something. The handles are sleek with the body, and they pop out. Uh, and it's for aerodynamics. She goes, oh, you just touch the handle, and then it'll, it'll come out to you or something like whatever kind of language. And I was like, all right, sweet. So I got in, and I took pictures. And then I said, hey, can you take a picture of me in the car? <laughs> she said, yeah, I certainly will. And I said, cool, I've got a 10-year-old son, and he is going to love this. So I got her to take a picture of me uh, in a Tesla, um, not running, but I mean, it's just a, it's just a golf cart, you know, it's an electric golf cart that's just steroided out. So it's just cool to sit in it. The uh, console is really cool. Very, very cool and huge and all digital. Like, oh my gosh, it's really rad. So anyway, there was all that going on. So just a little life lesson there. Um, I had a real nice adventure and now I have lots of energy because I did something cool because I went for a walk instead of uh, trying to, um, you know, drive and sit in a traffic jam all day and listen to uh, prearranged music on a, on a radio station. And you can do it too. And let's see, let's go ahead and wrap up everything. Let's give a shout out to a sponsor. Make sure I got my sponsors all lined up here. Let's talk about uh, sound probiotics. And a probiotic is, sound probiotics is a pill you take that has bacteria in it, the good bacteria that makes your immune system, super happy, super healthy, and 70% of your immune system comes through your digestive tract, through the bacteria in your digestive tract, and these are the bacteria that support health and immunity, and all you got to do is pop some of these in. I think it's, I think it's like 25 million bacteria in one pill of the good bacteria, and it starts you going along and also continues to create the good bacteria in your gut instead of the bad bacteria. And I was actually saying for a little while, somebody, I used to say that it was the bacteria. And then uh, somebody corrected me and said, no, it's the food for the bacteria. And then uh, somebody just corrected me back and said, no, it's the bacteria. (laughs) Oh my God. But there's um, bacteria units. CFU, I think is the count in there. And that's where I got the 25 million from. And um, anyway, Sound Probiotics is the happy good bacteria. You go check them out. You get a discount if you get them through Zentry. All you got to do is when you go to Zen, or is when you go to uh, Sound Probiotics, you use a discount code uh, Zentry, all caps, Zentry, and get 10% off your order. It's pretty cool. Really simple. I really like it. Um, I tried it for a little bit and then said, yep, I'm in, because it's very, very, very simple. And we like simple here at Zentry. And let's see, I wanted to pass that on to you Zinjas. So I'm going to start calling you guys uh, Zen Ninjas. And then we have, well, let's do some of the other sponsors towards the top of the show. And I'd also like to thank Alan Cousins. That was really cool. I was really stoked to have him on. And again, that was just an ask, right? And uh, the real Starkey uh, mentioned to me offhandedly that he gets the people on his show his big name uh, interviews that he gets, he just asks. That's it. That's all it takes. I want. That's your homework. This episode is to ask 
Don't be afraid to ask for stuff and watch what happens. It's really, really amazing. Um, Dwayne, uh, who is a longtime supporter of the show, sent me an email asking about this thing from BlueCore, and it's, uh, that's the company, and the thing is called the Core Suit. And it's this, uh, it's probably like a, looks like a rigid piece of plastic that you strap to your body and it keeps you from uh, turning and twisting too much. And it, it allows you to really feel what you're doing in the water. And you know what? He asked what I think of it. And dude, I've seen crazier crap in the water than that for sure. So I say, go ahead and try it. And, um, you know, if you don't like it, uh, send it back. Um, Every, what, what'll make you faster in the pool is stuff that makes you more aware of what your body is doing. And that's why to be a faster freestyler, you need to do different strokes like breaststroke and backstroke and whatever. Um, butterfly if you can, because that teaches you body awareness and just playing in the water. Um, one thing that led me to being a good swimmer, a competitive swimmer was that I just lived in the swimming pool, swimming around underwater, chasing my friends diving, running um, in and trying to get to the other side, uh, pushing off walls constantly, practicing, practicing, practicing through play. And that gives me um, just incredible body awareness in the water of what's happening and what fast feels like and what slow feels like. And these tools like paddles and, and cords and this core suit thing, C-O-R-S-U-I-T, I've seen something like it before. And um, if it teaches you oh, kickboards, I mean, like all this stuff, it, uh, pool boys, they teach you uh, what your body is doing in the water and try to fix your form. And the thing is, is you try it and then you see if it makes you faster. Always time yourself and see if it, what makes you faster, what makes you slower. So I say, give it a try. And I think that's it for this episode. And like to give a uh, shout out to all the sponsors and stay tuned for the next episode. We will be back in Texas with the uh, new house and trying to set up the training cave and just tons of uh, stuff that I'm going to be getting rid of and cleaning up my life to um, trim things down. You know, when you move from one place to the other, you find all this crap that, that you don't need. I got so many bike parts. Actually, I need some help. Like, where do I sell this stuff? You know, do I put it on eBay? Then I'm dealing with shipping stuff somewhere. You know, do I put it on um, uh, uh, Craigslist? And I end up haggling with people over crap when it's just junk, you know, but some of it's good. Um, I threw away a bike frame the other day because I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And it's just an old shitty bike frame um, that wasn't worth anything. And uh, yeah, I could have sold it, but man, it's worth like, 20 bucks and we're in the middle of moving and everything. So it's like, I don't know. I'm just going to get rid of it. You always, you always have to balance, you know, how much something's worth versus your time, um, to, to, uh, deal with it and your stress. A lot of us don't think that way. We need to start thinking that way. All right. So that's it for now. Everybody stay safe out there. Tune into the next episode when we come around with our next guest, which will be Leslie. Yep, there it is. It is definitely on. Going to be interviewing her on Monday. Leslie Smith, pro triathlete with Maverick. Oh, man, that's going to be really cool. I'm very interested in talking with her because she eats well-rounded meals, and she's going to do a food log for us. Female pro, food log. Oh, man, it's going to be good stuff. So stay tuned. Everybody stay safe out there. Use ninjas. Work the uphills. Cruise the downhills. And keep the rubber side down out.